Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud, so good to have you with me. I wonder whether you have heard of tonight's author. He was a professor of English at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, a newspaper columnist, a pianist and singer, an inveterate walker and trout fisherman. He was even once lieutenant governor of Connecticut. He was Odell Shepard, a man of many parts, endlessly curious and thoughtful about the world. He wrote on many topics and in many genres. His novel, Jenkins' Ear, co-authored with his son Willard, was a Book of the Month Club selection, and his book, Peddler's Progress, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1938. At the age of fifty, he retreated to a cabin in the woods in northwestern Connecticut to write a book of reflective essays entitled The Cabin Down the Glen. It was never published during his lifetime, and was discovered many years later among his papers by my friend, composer, and writer Rick Sowash, who lovingly assembled and edited the book for publication in 2006. It is an extraordinary book, unsurpassed in the music and flow of its language, and Odell Shepard is wonderfully good company. My thanks to Rick Sowash for his kind permission to share with you a couple of pieces from this lovely book. Rain on the Roof A million little silver feet are dancing delicately to the music of the wind three yards above my head. At every moment their rhythms and their figures change. Their tempo changes from slow to swift, from allegro to a stately stepping andante. The room is resonant with their tiny tramplings. It reverberates like a great hollow drum under numberless muffled drumsticks. How instantly the sense of shelter, one of the oldest of human emotions, is lifted to the pitch of glee by this patter of raindrops. The breath-catching delight that our forefathers felt many ages ago in huts of piled stone roofed with boughs when they heard the many feet of the rain just above them and knew that they were warm and dry. This comes back to us in force today after all our centuries of comparative comfort. Probably there is no other feeling in which we come closer to them, none that carries us nearer to a realization of those interminable centuries during which the weak and naked human animal held out somehow, kept alive and not quite hopeless, against wet and cold and hunger and darkness and the creeping terrors of the dark. Shelter. Four walls and a roof that shed the rain, that break the wind, that keep the warmth in and the wilderness out. Have we forgotten how good these are? Divorced and estranged from the elemental, ignorant or forgetful of the long effort by which the simplest of our comforts have been won, have we lost for a time almost completely this ancient sense of shelter? When the dance of silver feet begins along the roof, we remember again those ages that have no history except such a revived writing on the palimpsest of the heart. Foxes have holes in the earth, and birds have nests where they rear their young, and why should a man's dwelling be less natural than theirs? To me, at least, this revelry on my roof brings the sky and the outer world more near, even while it deepens the sense of seclusion. I am closest to nature while walking in the rain or against a driving storm of snow, but the present experience comes next to that. It makes me feel no longer a spectator. I am in the workshop. For this is what I am thinking. 
A minute ago the raindrops, now musical above me, were riding high over hill and forest, playfellows of the wind. What journeys they have made in coming here, and how long they have been on the way! Sinking down to the rocky bases of the planet, lying still there in the dark for weeks or months or years, bubbling forth again to the light in the springs of the mountain and of old worn pastures, washing the roots of grass and trees, climbing to the stem of a briar-rose to issue in the breath of a blossom, shining in the dawn as dew, sparkling in brooks and darkling in rivers, tossing on the sea, drawn up into clouds and blown over deserts and farms and cities, and then falling at last with a dance and a song to cheer a solitary man. Every drop that I hear, though young as the morning, is also very old. I think how the summer shower will bring refreshment to this gray pasture and to that ferny lane, to the thirsting columbines on their rocky knoll, and to the browning meadows by the stream. I imagine the swift patter of drops on the leaves of the maple, or dimpling the surface of the lake. I see how they will glisten in the feathered grass, and deep in the hearts of roses when the sun shines again. Thus the rain that shuts me in may really set me free. Fancy spreads her wings when she hears this music. The space and freedom of the day are brought into my cabin. But the sound of this elfin drumming is best to hear when I am falling asleep. Not only does it assure me of safety, but it leads my thought away until it is lost in the land I knew when a child. I may have supposed I should never come there again for a long way it is and winding, with many intricate turns among the shadows. Yet I can still win back to that land on any night when the rain is on the roof. No guide can lead me to a fairer place, or to one I have longer loved. There is no faint memory of childhood that the rain has not kept fresh. And while I am listening to it, no rich man in the world is lulled by a more somnolent music." No king falls asleep to a drowsier minstrelsy. My Next-Door Neighbors Twenty feet from my cabin there stands an infant hemlock some thirty inches tall. In former years, before I fenced the cattle out of these acres, it has been a good deal nibbled by the cows so that its foliage is now uncommonly dense and it looks at a distance like a small squat cone of dark emerald. Until a month ago I was hardly aware of its existence, for I have too many hundreds of adult and majestic hemlocks about me here to pay much attention to beginners, but henceforth I shall never look at it without respect. Louisiana will hear from this small hemlock, and the twilights of early April will be more magical among the mountains of the Blue Ridge because of its gift. It may grow into a lordly, voluminous tree that will dwarf my humble cabin, and my grandchildren may fancy that its huge shadows of afternoon belong to the solid fixity of the planet. Yet the crowning feat of its history is already accomplished. Like some precocious genius who produces in childhood a work which he can never equal in later years, from now on its pride must be in backward looking. My attention was first called to this tree about five weeks ago 
by a small brown bird which I saw coming out of or going into it on several successive evenings just at nightfall, sometimes uttering an anxious housekeeping note with which I was not then familiar. It did not seem likely that she could see me where I sat by my stone table in the deep shadow of a full-grown hemlock, but she was uneasily aware of some human proximity. Concluding at length that she was paying rather more attention to that small tree than it seemed intrinsically to deserve, I made a casual search on the ground under it for a nest, without result. The next morning, however, I saw her fly out, as it seemed, from the very middle of the tree, and in the same instant I recognized her as a hermit thrush. Parting the pendant twigs and branches, I looked down upon a nest perfectly hidden of pine needles and moss and coarse grasses sewn together with thin rootlets. In it were three eggs, pale greenish-blue. Considering that these were the first eggs of the hermit thrush that I had ever seen in the wild, and that the bird itself, besides being, to my thinking, unquestionably the finest singer in all the forests of the world, is to me a symbol of things that go beyond all song, it may be understood that this was for me an ecstatic moment. I gazed down at those three small capsules of magic with such intensity that I know I shall see them thirty years hence just as I saw them then, pallidly shining in the early sunlight. I shall see them as clearly as Robinson Crusoe saw to the end of his days the single imprint of a human foot on a sun-swept strand. From that moment I forgot all other trees. Night and morning, at noon and at twilight, my thoughts hovered about that infant hemlock. Whether it rained or blew or shone, I did not ask how I liked the weather, but only how the mother thrush would like it, and not content with wondering, I went to see. By easy stages, at distances of ten feet, seven, five, three, and two, I accustomed her to my approach. She always eyed me steadily, with something minutely formidable and ferine in the arch of her beak and the half-inch stretch of her speckled throat over the nest's edge but only once did she betray the slightest alarm by any motion. That was on an occasion when I went up to her in considerably less raiment than convention dictates even on bathing beaches. With one shrill cry of dismay, she sprang from the nest and fled. This was, of course, a mistake on her part, for during all my previous approaches it had been her role to pretend that she was not really there at all and now her secret was definitely divulged, as good as published. But I had a shamefaced feeling that the original error had been mine. If there is anything more touching in all nature than the patience of an incubating wild bird, I do not know about it. Other birds fly over and flit from bough to bough, or sing carefree in the distant wood. Butterflies gamble in the sun. The grasses billow down the wind, and the shadows of the breeze-swung branches quiver. But she sits still and without a sound, hour after hour, day after day. Her eager instinct to be afloat on the wing is countered by a more powerful instinct to sit immobile. And this is the strangest and most touching phase of the whole matter from the human viewpoint, 
that she does not know why she does so. Every stage, indeed, of the maternal process—nest-building, incubation, feeding the young and teaching them to fly—is to her, we must suppose, quite unpurposive, meaningless in the sense that it has no conscious goal or intent. There were some eighteen days of this patient brooding. It was not absolutely continuous. She was off the nest nearly always when the sun shone upon it, and I must admit that she was away at some other times, late in the evenings, when I personally should not have advised it. Her manner, however, even when she was returning from an excursion on the chill edge of nightfall, was always that of perfect assurance and clear conscience. It was as though she said, I'm doing this. You wait and see. And she was right. One warm afternoon, just eleven days ago, I went to the nest when she was not there and found one of the eggshells broken. From the larger fragment was scrambling a tiny, featherless creature, which I took, against abundant evidence to the contrary, to be a hermit thrush. It would have been a joy to see that egg first begin to roll and tumble, and then to see the beak come crashing through, but at least I am able to report that the first thing a hermit thrush does when he arrives in this world is to unwind his neck, which is about half as long as he is, and to open his mouth so very wide that he seems to be opening most of the way down. I should have liked also to have seen the mother when she first set eyes upon that youngster, for there is such an amazing difference between a smooth gray-blue egg lying quiet in the nest on the one hand and a hermit thrush, even ten minutes old, on the other. I do not suppose that I should have discerned any remarkable change in her countenance as she sat on the edge of the nest that evening and examined what the egg had turned into, but surely she must have exclaimed to herself some equivalent of, Oh, this is something new! If I do not know what she thought, I am sure what she did almost at once after the astonishing transmogrification of that first egg. She went out into the woods, found there another hermit thrush, somewhat larger and more vividly colored than herself, found him sitting pensive and poetic on some shady bough, no doubt, meditating a new cadenza, and said to him, in effect, Hurry home. You have a wonderful voice, and I have enjoyed it greatly during all these days, but music can wait, and I have something to show you that can't. He hearkened and obeyed. He laid his singing robes aside, as Milton did when his country called. The next morning I found him taking his turn at the nest, foraging for provender, and uttering not one tuneful syllable. The forest choir had one perfect voice the less. One of the shyest of birds, this father thrush was amazed to find himself in such a public place as my cabin clearing. He took far more elaborate precautions in approach and departure than the mother had ever done, and often consumed half an hour in sidling from bough to bough and zigzagging along the ground before he could deposit his contribution. I sympathized with him deeply because, in my amateur way, I am something of a hermit too, and yet— after all, I was here first. When the youngest thrush, some fifteen hours the junior of the eldest, was three days old, I had to leave the cabin for almost a week. 
Upon my return I found the nest literally bulging with thrush. The singular is justified because, although one counted three beaks and six wild black eyes, the three birds were wedged so closely together that they seemed to coalesce. They had indeed grown mightily in their summer days, and they needed to do so, considering that in less than two months they would have to be on toward the Gulf of Mexico, traveling not in bassinets, but on the wing a mile high at night, going over country never seen before, without guides, the young birds of the season flying in separate flocks, separated forever from their parents. Ah, yes, they needed to grow. It was yesterday that I returned and saw the three fully-fledged and almost full-grown birds sitting very still on the nest. They had never taken any exercise. This morning, looking from my cabin window, I saw them fluttering their wings, stretching their necks, shaking themselves as though in glee at the sunshine that streamed in upon them. An hour later there were only two birds there. In half an hour I looked again, and there was one. Twenty minutes later the nest was empty. On this ninth of August, then, the little hemlock tree twenty feet from my cabin door finished its task. Three arrows have been drawn from this green quiver. Far and wide in the world may they fly and sing. You've been listening to Rain on the Roof and My Next Door Neighbors from the book The Cabin Down the Glen by Odell Shepard. I hope you will agree with me that he was a stylist of the first rank. Rick Sowash once spoke to one of Shepard's students, a man then in his eighties. He still recalled what Odell Shepard taught his students about writing. Make it simple, make it clear, make it sing. Let's go out with a composition by Rick Sowash. It's entitled Spring Breezes, from his Seasonal Breezes for Flute, Cello, and Piano. Joyful Music. See if you can't imagine the young thrushes in flight. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, please stay safe. All the best.